What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co. Welcome to this week's edition of the Baseball America College Podcast. I'm Teddy Cahill. Joining me, as always, is Joe Healy. We will be joined a little bit later in the show by Lehigh right-hander Mason Black, a prominent prospect in the 2021 draft. So we're, we're excited to talk uh, with Mason about summer ball, about Lehigh, about the draft, a little bit of everything. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a really good interview, uh, so definitely uh, – Look forward to that in the next few minutes. But we're uh, we're very happy you tuned in to the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo. Rapsodo has become the industry standard in player performance data. Coaches use Rapsodo data as a measuring stick for player development and evaluation. The Rapsodo National Player Database is a free service that allows you to see how you stack up against your peers and provides a pathway to get discovered by scouts. So again, that's the this is the Baseball America College podcast presented by Rapsodo. Joe, uh, we're, we're excited to be here talking about some college baseball in late August. Uh, it's, a, it's an interesting time uh, in college athletics, in college stuff in general, as uh, more, more schools get back to, to classes, be they online or not. Uh, but it's, uh, you know, it, we have reached the end of the summer, and uh, we're going to do some summer, some summer college ball uh wrap up here on, on the show today we can also while we're at it do some um summer uh pestilence wrap up um i am not i'm not someone who's overly um uh, overly uh, wigged out by bugs like i'm not so bothered by bugs i grew up on the gulf coast bugs are a part of life there uh, especially the skeeters you know that are like the size of of you know um rats mice you know um but I will say, in moving here, uh, there has been one exception to that rule where the first time I saw one, it kind of, it kind of freaked me out a little bit. Um, Teddy, have you? I'm sure you've experienced these. How do you feel about house centipedes? Yeah, uh, not great. Uh, I definitely did not know. I mean, like, I, it was not something I experienced before I moved to North Carolina. Um, but yeah. The, they they may make an appearance in your bathroom and it's uh i i don't mind bugs that much but anything with that many legs um becomes sketchy to me i would say oh, absolutely yeah I'm, I'm with you i think they, they really vary in size too like there there's some that are like really teeny tiny and there's some that are like four inches long and the first time I saw one, it was, I guess it was probably later in the spring. They really start to come around when it's been wet, you know, and we've, we've had a lot of rain here this summer. So the first time I saw one kind of like moving across, it was actually, um, I suspect it came in like through perhaps through like the, the chimney area and it's moving across the floor. And I'm a pretty like calm and collected person just in general. I'm also someone who, you know, I don't typically, uh, use foul language that often to be honest with you um but when i saw this thing crawling i i yelled in my home what the bleep is that because i, I had no idea what this thing was, and it was that was my first experience with a, with a house centipede and i feel like it's like the worst word that could come after house you know it's like house cat house warming you know house hunters house hunters international like house and then centipede should not be the second word there because that implies that like we call these house centipedes because they get in your house and like i i just i don't like that and like i said i you know i'm used to the cockroaches that like are a foot long growing up in texas i'm used to the, the mosquitoes and the different beetles june bugs all that kind of stuff it's it's whatever to me i don't enjoy it but like you deal with the bugs you either squish them or you lead them outside whatever you you want to do but those there's something about those house centipedes. I think it's all the legs. I think you're right. I think it's all the legs. Um, those really kind of wig me out. The other ones I see outside a lot are these 
kind of centipedes that have like shiny black shells and like yellow legs. Those are millipedes. Millip, pardon me. Oh my goodness. I'm sorry. Didn't mean to be disrespectful to them, but yes, those millipedes kind of, now those don't haven't gotten in the house yet, knock on wood, but I see those outside all the time, especially when it's, when it's wet outside, but those are kind of fascinating to watch because I don't know, I don't feel threatened by them because they're not in my home, but this has definitely been the summer of Joe discovering local, um, local bugs here in North Carolina. And the house centipede is uh, number one on my list of things that I did not anticipate having to deal with and am not happy about having to deal with, but Hey, that's life. Yeah. Those things move fast. And like, that's, Oh problem yeah. Them you get, versus you get, the millipede, which is uh, yes. more of a caterpillar, slightly faster than the caterpillar. Yeah. These, these house centipedes, that thing about them too, like you get, especially if they're in like a weird spot, like if they're like um, kind of on like a uneven part of the, the ground or the wall or like kind of up on a ledge a little bit, like you kind of get one crack at them. Like if, if you're trying to, uh, and, and I'm, I'm the type of person I would rather lead a bug outside. Like I, I do not like squishing bugs because I just, you know, feels like the kind thing to do to just kind of let nature be nature. Uh, but sometimes you got to do what you got to do. And sometimes like these, these things are quick. Like you get one really good crack at them typically. And if you miss, you miss. And then you're like, okay, well, where is it now? And you just got to kind of live with it. But, um, that's, uh, so yeah, a, a summer of discovery, if you will, on the pestilence front. It's uh, it's a challenging summer for uh, for numerous aspects here in uh, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we got the pandemic and, and we got bugs. Um, although I suppose the bugs are, are around most summers, but uh, regardless, uh, they are here. And we're we are coming to uh, to colder times though, and uh, and with that comes uh, a whole different set of, of worries around the country, but. Uh, in the meantime, we're, uh, we're going to take a shot at kind of wrapping up summer ball here on the podcast today. Uh, like I mentioned, Mason Black will join us. He pitched in the South Florida Collegiate League where he was pitcher of the year. Uh, that comes after a summer where he, was, uh, he started the Cape Cod League All-Star game uh, a year ago as, uh, after his freshman season at Lehigh. So uh, summer ball star Mason Black uh, is... Uh, I guess the way I'm going to refer to him now, <laughs> um, but we, uh, you know, we're, we, we've got some stuff on the website over the last week or so that, uh, you know, helps wrap up summer ball as well. I um, put together a list of kind of the, the biggest summer leagues with their champions and some standout performers. And uh, normally we would do, you know, top prospects from the Cape Cod league and, the collegiate national team and, you know, whatever other leagues uh, are out there, we would oftentimes, you know, have top prospects from there as well. We're not doing that this year. Uh, first of all, there was no Cape, there, there was no CNT, but, you know, even for these other leagues, uh, just with the way that everything went in terms of, you know, what, uh, how they got scouted uh, and, you know, how many games they played and, you know, all the rest of it, 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 it's just very difficult to put together a real prospect list, but we are going to have uh, in the magazine and online, um, you know, a, some updated reports on some of the top players uh, from around the country this summer that, that Joe's been working on. So I would encourage you to, uh, to check those out over at the website or in the magazine, uh, which we just sent to press. So hopefully for subscribers, uh, they will be getting that uh, soon in, in their mailboxes. Uh, and, and lots of good stuff. There were a lot of good players playing out there uh, this summer, as we've detailed before, they were just very scattered. So um, kind of hard to, to bring them all together, but we're, we're doing our best uh, you know, to do so for, for you guys. Um, Joe and I will talk more about some of the summer stuff uh, here in, in a little bit, but first let's just, uh, let's bring in Mesa Black, who, uh, like I mentioned, uh, summer summer ball star Mason Black uh, here to join us uh, on the podcast. Uh, coming off of a, a very impressive summer uh, in the South Florida Collegiate League, and, and looking forward to a very important year uh, and the potential of being a, a pretty high draft pick next June. Today on the Baseball America College podcast, we are very excited to be joined by Lehigh right-hander Mason Black. Mason is uh, one of the, the top draft prospects in the 2021 draft. 
Uh, he's a rising junior, or I suppose redshirt sophomore is how we will be referring to them this year, uh, at Lehigh. And he's coming off of an impressive summer in the South Florida Collegiate League where he won Pitcher of the Year honors. Uh, and that's after a summer the year before in the Cape Cod League uh, when he started the All-Star Game. So, uh, you know, Mason, really high in talent, and we're, we're excited to, to talk with you today. And let's just start with, uh, with this summer, um, you know, after such a strange spring season in that it got canceled in March, uh, just what was it like to be able to get back out on the mound uh, and pitch? Yeah, thank you, first of all, for having me on this podcast. It's an honor to be here, and thank you for the intro. But also, it was just going into this summer was a little bit more different of a feel than it was prior going up into Cape Cod. But it just was once our season got shut down, and I was able to go home and kind of reset, hit the reset on the body, shut down from throwing for a couple of weeks. Then you start getting anxious once school is over. You don't really have too much to do. So I took the, that opportunity to go ahead and just throw some reps out of bullpen, start building up stamina. And then I was lucky enough to go down into the South Florida League. And it was just, it was just a very exciting time. And obviously you miss playing in, game, in, uh, in games. So it was just exciting to go down there get to meet some new faces and get back out on the field. I know a lot of guys are missing that. You, uh, I know, were, were headed back to the Cape until it got canceled. Uh, then how did that opportunity come about to, to go to South Florida? And kind of what, what did you make of, uh, of the experience once you got down there? It was very spur of the moment, actually. I was initially, initially going to pitch in our local league out of Scranton, Pennsylvania, which is where I'm from. And it was just put on by my former travel team. And we had a lot of local talent in the area. So I was going to play there. However, I reached out to one of my Lehigh teammates who was going down into the South Florida League, who put me in contact with Vince Farfaglia, the owner and commissioner of Boca Blazers and the league in general. And he was able to offer me a roster spot on the Boca Raton Blazers. And that was kind of the story that um, I got in there probably the Friday, I think, before rosters had to be finalized. So I was very blessed and very lucky to get that opportunity. And then just as far as the summer experience goes, it was so much fun. I just have to say, brought back almost a sense of normalcy to just my life overall. Obviously, things are a lot different in Pennsylvania than in Florida. However, it was so nice just to get down there and get back out on the field, like I had mentioned prior, and get back in the weight room and just kind of have that sense of baseball to kind of tie you in and keep you occupied. So you certainly took advantage of the opportunity this summer. As Teddy alluded to, you were named the pitcher of the year in the league, and the stats are, are really eye-popping. Uh, what worked for you this summer? What, how did you feel? Um, what do you think was the key to you having the level of success that you did? I was able to, during quarantine, as I mentioned before, I was able to work on Rap Soto and kind of get back with one of my pitching coaches back home. Um, and John Cranick, he was with the Pirates organization for a little bit. His brother is, plays with the Pirates as well, one of my best friends. But just in working with him and we kind of kind we tried to redesign a slider and really just work on that. So I had the opportunity to practice with that in game when I went down there this summer. And I think that was a lot of the key to my success as well as just going back out there, almost like you have something to prove. It was it was a lot of fun. And then also I worked on some stuff in shortening up my arm action because that's what we felt my uh, my coaches here as well as back over the summer felt that that was probably the best thing for me to do with my off speed so it was a big big work in progress this summer you were up to 98 uh with the fastball as well which is up from what i had heard last summer is is adding velo something you were you were also working on i just think velo was something that kind of came i would say just naturally through like the gym and everything just getting back in the gym down there getting in the weight room again really helped me out. And then also the warm weather, who doesn't love to pitch in warm weather? That also helped a ton. So I was just, and obviously like when you have guys behind the home plate with radar guns, you kind of want to give them something to stay for. So I think a little bit of adrenaline really tied into that as well. This will be, this, I mean, this is the second summer where you really shined. I you know, heard a lot about you last summer when you were on the Cape. Uh, is there something specific about the summer ball setting that suits you? I mean, you mentioned the warm weather. That's 
got to be kind of nice. And given that you're playing your spring in Pennsylvania, that's obviously not the case there. So um, is there something else to it that, that really allows you to shine that way in summer ball? Uh, I'm not sure, actually. It's just more of the environment, I think. Just having, having like 25 other guys that you don't know and you have to go out there and really just like earn your keep. And it was a lot different last summer on Cape Cod because I was a temporary player. So like if I didn't perform, I was getting booted from the team. And I know it sounds kind of harsh to say, but that's the reality of it when you're a temp. And um, just the summer ball experience, it's a lot easier to throw to guys with wood bats as well. That's a big confidence boost. And then it's almost like you're hitting your stride when you get into summer ball. And it's been a lot of fun. And I was lucky, like you said, to have the success I did. What, um, when you look back on the summer, kind of what, what were the highlights or, or what are you going to remember the most about, about the summer ball? Uh, I'm definitely going to remember the people. People will make or break a summer ball season, I'd say. And I say it all the time with my host family up on Cape Cod, and I'll say it again this summer. Just, like, being around that type of people and in, in the environment that they really make you feel welcomed and just kind of are rooting for you. Just so It helps so much. It helps you stay comfortable and really perform at your best. Definitely going to remember that as well as just, like, the baseball moments. We played during the biggest pandemic, one of the biggest switch-ups in our whole entire life. And it's just, it'll be an awesome story saying like, hey, I played through that and South Florida League really helped us kind of stay safe and go about our business in a safe way. So obviously, with you going to school at Lehigh, Lehigh education is, is no joke. Um, you know, that's obviously uh, pretty rigorous. And with the semester starting up here soon, you're going to get back at it. And that you major in bioengineering. And I'm kind of curious how you landed on that as the major you wanted to pursue and then Obviously, perhaps after you finish a career in, in baseball, hopefully, I mean, uh, what were the type of things that you would like to do with that? What interests you about that field? That was actually one of the, that's been a question I've gotten a lot recently. But just having that, I, um, I wanted to go into, initially when I got into, we're going through high school, I wanted to go into medical school after college. And I didn't want to do the stereotypical bio, like just bio, excuse me, biology degree where you just kind of go to class and just have a couple labs. And I, it, I just didn't really feel that that would be the way I would want to go about doing college. I like math. I'm kind of a nerd on that side of things. So um, that was a pretty easy choice for me to pick bioengineering. I'm in biopharmaceutical and still pre-med now, which has been really exciting, just kind of seeing that side of things and learning about things, especially during this pandemic. I uh, nerd out a little bit about some of the vaccination stuff because that's more tailored to my field. So it's just something that I really felt was me and I could fall in love with. And then just as opposed to, or just getting out of baseball, one of the things that I really wanted to do was kind of focus on drug development or go to med medical school would be an option as well. How, uh, how hard is that to balance? You know, in the spring, you're obviously on the road a lot. There's a lot of practice no matter what time of year we're talking about. How, how difficult is it to balance uh, you know, your classes with your, your athletics? I actually, a lot of people ask me that as well. And it's just, you, it almost helps being a student athlete because you know that if you're not at the field, you're not working on baseball or lifting or doing something along those lines, you, could, you can't be messing around. Like it helps with your time management and you just have to go out there and get your work done uh, from the academic side when you're not doing your athletic side of things. So we, I, we come to the part of the show where, where Teddy and I are going to do a little bit of a close reading of Mason Black's bio on the Lehigh side here. And one of the things that caught our eye, and he might know where we're going with this, is his favorite thing about Lehigh is the campus. All the steps make your legs look great. Um, Mason, do you get a lot of compliments on your legs? Is this something that has been tested? Is it you observing others? I mean, what, what's, what's the deal there? Uh, explain to us why this is your favorite thing about Lehigh. <laughs> Well, I just like to make a joke of it because a lot of people like to complain about our campus and how it's, it's literally on the side of a mountain here. So um, keeps your legs conditioned. I like, to, I like to let the calves eat a little bit here and wear some flip-flops or wear some like, higher, uh, higher shorts around campus just because. Why not? Does that make a leg day easier or harder? Oh, that, that makes – knowing that you have to walk up and down this mountain makes leg day a lot harder, but – you know, you wouldn't want it any other way, I guess. Every, you know, there's 34 other guys that are suffering with you. So I guess you just have to keep that in perspective. 
You also mentioned there that your favorite food is burritos. Uh, so let's break down this ideal burrito. What, what is going into your, your burrito? There are different types of burritos, that's for sure. I am a big breakfast burrito guy. So ideal breakfast burrito. My mom owns a restaurant back home, actually. And um, she, I got to say, her breakfast burritos are the greatest things ever. It's called Cachetti's. But they, um, they put the sausage, breakfast sausage in there, bacon, eggs, cheese. I love avocado, so I'll mix some of that in. And then um, also like home fries and spinach in there. And then if I'm going to a lunch burrito or a dinner burrito, it's got to be chicken. Obviously have to have guacamole in there, as well as some rice, black beans, uh, big corn guy, as well as some hot salsa and sour cream. I appreciate the, uh, the effort you put into really breaking down. That's exactly the kind of answer we were looking for on this podcast. <laughs> it's nice, a nice breakdown of, of the burrito situation. Uh, quick follow-up there before I get to my next question. You, you shouted it out briefly, but your mom owns a restaurant back home. Let's, let's shout it out. The name of the restaurant, the type of food they're doing there, the setting, the ambiance. Give us a little rundown of mom's restaurant. Uh, mom's restaurant is the best they have. So it's a breakfast and lunch place. It's called Cachetti's and it's located in Peckville, Pennsylvania. It's right outside of Scranton. And um, they have they have it going right there. Honestly, right now, it's been a little bit of a switch up with the whole pandemic going on. So they're just doing outdoor seating and like walk up window kind of stuff. But they um, breakfast lunch place, like I mentioned, real homey environment. I love it. And um, it kind of just sums up the area I'm from where everyone's just like, small town vibe and it's a little bit smaller and I love it. Uh, so did you like grow up working in the restaurant? Is that something that you, you've had to, you know, you've grown up with a, a lot or is that a, a separate thing? Like you, you didn't have to, to help out there. I definitely grew up in the restaurant, but I wouldn't say that's from a working standpoint. That's more from an eating standpoint. And, um, one of the one of the things I think my mom could agree on this is that she would not want me working there with her. I know my little cousin works there right now just to kind of make some money during her time and help out, but I doubt my mom would want me working there. I think we see enough enough of each other, and she would go crazy if she had to stay around me that long. There's a uh, one more thing on the bio here I wanted to go over, and that is uh, your favorite place on campus is the secret room in Linderman Library. Uh, what on earth is that? <laughs> That was something that my teammates and I found when we were freshmen. And it's this back room in Linderman. I guess it's not really a secret, but we thought it was the coolest thing in the world because the first, I'd say, I, basically the first semester of school, we were able to go into there and just be all baseball guys in there. And no one else kind of seemed to test us. And they would just like walk in, see who's there, and then just leave. So we started to call it the secret room because not too many people knew about it. All right, let's talk about the 2021 Mountain Hawks since we're, we're now talking about your teammates. Um, you have the makings of a, a really great pitching staff next year. You, um, you know, yourself, of course, Luke Reddick, and you mentioned, you know, though not by name, Matt Sponson kind of was, was down in the South Florida League with you, uh, and, and he had a nice summer as well. What's the dynamic of that pitching staff, and, and how much do you guys feed off of each other? Uh, we feed off of each other an enormous amount. It's always so fun when we get back on campus like we are right now, where we can almost see each other's progress. It was a little different this summer because we were able to see each other's progress, which really just lays, raises our bar in which we're all competing for essentially the number one spot on our team. And it's a lot of fun just having that environment and having the younger guys feed off of that sort of environment that we, we try to strive to create. The, uh, the Patriot League is being a smaller league like it is. I think one of the things about it is that um, it kind of lends itself to, to being really competitive, especially when you have a situation where you know what Navy and Army are going to bring to the table. Uh, you guys are, are, are just as talented there. Uh, what do you think is the key for your team as a whole to be the team that comes out on top and is actually finally able to unseat Navy where it's been five or six years now where they've been running the league? Yeah, there's, there's a couple keys, I would say. Obviously, we have this big repertoire of pitching that we, we just have to go out and really perform and hold our team in games. Being in the Patriot League, you have the doubleheader on Saturday and then sometimes a doubleheader on Sunday where the first game is a one-inning or a seven-inning game. And we really just – those games are always about an hour and a half in length. 
So it's just a, it's a real grind to kind of put together a run off of the other team's ace. So I think just kind of manufacturing runs any way we could, as well as just pitching how we should, should really be keys for us. I know it's, it sounds a little bit bland of an answer, but honestly, that's, that's how I think it is. You talked a lot about what you were working on this spring during the shutdown. Um, you know, now what, what's kind of your goals for the fall coming off of uh, what you were able to do in the spring and summer? What, what's the next step in the, that development for you? I would say the next step is I'm obviously not where I want to be with my arm path. I would like that to be a lot shorter just to kind of save my body on some stress and um, able, be able to go later into games. So I think that's a big focus as well as kind of refining the slider that I developed over the summer. And it seemed to get better during the summer. I don't think it's anywhere near where it should be or could be really. So I think that's going to be a big focus as well as just kind of pitch mix is going to be a bigger thing now that I have that pitch. It's going to be seeing what works best against these guys, against X, Y, or Z player. And just kind of that mix so that I have a, almost a one-two combo where I can go with a fastball in, might it be, and then a change up just so I can really steal back two strikes if I'm ever down on the count. You're coming into a big year, not just for Lehigh, of course, uh, though this, you know, this group, when, when you guys look at yourselves on the mound, I'm sure you, you imagine that you can accomplish big things uh, in the spring, but also for yourself, uh, there's draft buzz already. I guess I'm responsible for some of that. <laughs> but when you, when, when you look at all of that, you know, how, how do you go about you know, this year? And are you, are you trying to tune out the draft talk? Is that something you really want to... Uh, push to the back or embrace or, or how are you just approaching uh, what what could be a pretty big year for you and, and Lehigh? It's always been about just kind of keeping a mellow mindset with things and not thinking too much about the draft talk. Like it's awesome always seeing your name on that kind of stuff. It's really cool. Great for our program as well. But in the end, it's, it's still at right around nine months away for the draft. So you can't, can't let yourself get a big head or get too far ahead of yourself. And I think that's something that I've been, I've been working on a lot and just kind of my teammates here have been helping me as well with that and just kind of making me feel comfortable. Like I don't have to go out and be anything more than who I am. Awesome. Well, Mason, we really appreciate you taking the time for us today to, to join us here on the Baseball America College podcast. It was great to talk to you and we're going to look forward to, to seeing you pitch uh, this spring uh, with, with Lehigh. Likewise. Thank you guys for having me as well. This was a lot of fun. Thank you again to Lehigh right-hander Mason Black for joining us here on the Baseball America College podcast. Uh, Joe, that's back-to-back interviews with, uh, with some pretty smart guys. Steve Beezer, math teacher, um, you know, was on last week. And, and uh, here we have, uh, you know, Mason Black, who's, you know, lining up the idea of, of going to med school if, uh, if baseball doesn't work out. So we've, uh, we, we've got the We've got the brains coming through uh, on the podcast here in the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no kidding. That was not done intentionally, but it's funny how that, how that worked out. It kind of reminds me of when I was in high school and I think like a lot of uh, kids who uh, are, are that age and were coming up at that time, like you, you listen to like uh, the Jim Rome show, who was a big deal at that time. And he would, uh, he would have these streaks where he would talk to someone named Rex for like 20 days in a row and it would start off as an accident and then he would just be a bit like, I feel like this is an opportunity for us to do a bit here where we, we just have the theme of like math, for example, because there is the link there because Mason Black did say that he is kind of a nerd when it comes to the math part, which is part of why he went with the, the engineering focus as just opposed to the straight up biology focus. So that was interesting. So there is the, there is the link there that we could just turn this into a bit where we, we find all of the math majors in college baseball and just kind of stack them one after the other after the other. At some point, we just interviewed the entirety of like Virginia Tech and Georgia Tech's rosters. Right. We just go, yeah, go for all the engineering <laughs> schools like Purdue, come on down. Yeah. Well, you know, Mason, you know, as interesting as the, the off-field stuff was, and believe, believe us listeners, we'll, we'll get to that. Um, you know, in terms of the on-field stuff, just a very impressive what he's been able to do. He had some... You know, he, he was a bit of a known quantity in, in high school, uh, but he wasn't that big of a deal as a prospect. Uh, but, you know, Lehigh was very excited 
to get him and uh, Luke Reddick in, in the same recruiting class a few years ago. And I, I talked with Sean Leary about that at the time. And uh, he was very excited about what they could be and, and where they could take the program. And, um, you know, we're still, you know, kind of wait, you know, unfortunately they got robbed of, of this year along with everyone else. Um, you know, their freshman year, Mason was injured for the first half of the season, I would say. And, you know, it's their freshman year anyway, but I, I'll be very interested to see if they are able to kind of make a, a significant jump in 2021 uh, as a program. But, you know, in terms of development, you know, just personal development, you know, Mason Black has positioned himself to a point where, you know, you're, you're looking at um, certainly a potential top five round pick, probably more like a top three round pick. And, you know, if he actually, you know, if, if he's able to, to pitch a full season next year, showing the same kind of stuff he showed this summer in South Florida, I mentioned getting up to 98 and more consistently pitching in the mid nineties. Like he has the potential to go, you know, very high in the draft. And, uh, you know, that's really exciting for Lehigh. That's exciting for the Patriot league. Maybe not as exciting for opposing hitters in the Patriot league, but, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, that, that's a, a game changing kind of talent, uh, for Lehigh uh, as, as they go into 2021. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to see Lehigh too, to kind of, become the type of program that has these types of arms that people probably remember Levi Stout a couple of years ago, a third round pick in 2019, uh, Mason Black coming up right behind him. And then, and then to a, a larger degree that the Patriot league just really becoming this, this pitching league. And I think it has always had that a little bit. It's always been known as more of a pitching league versus an offensive league. And then there are a lot of reasons for that. Some of which are just, you know, sometimes the, um, you know, the, the cold weather in these smaller leagues, you typically don't get the, you know, super athletic offensive minded guy, you know, who, who turns into like a, just kind of one of those freak athletes who can do it all offensively. The, those players aren't growing on trees in a lot of places these programs are recruiting. That's, that's part of it. But, but you look at the guys that, you know, Army's had guys in recent years, Navy, certainly when you, when you talk about Noah Song most uh, notably, but also guys like Luke Gillingham and, and Navy's just had incredible staffs from, top to bottom. And now Lehigh's had a couple of guys back to back who are big time prospects. And so uh, clearly uh, Sean Leary and his staff are doing something right in terms of bringing those guys in, but uh, black just kind of fits into what, to what this league and what this program has been as of late. And, and I am genuinely excited as I asked him about how interesting the Patriot league had, has become. And I know that that is a little bit of my brand to be interested in the low major leagues, but I don't think that's just me being me here. I think there is some, legitimate interest in what the Patriot League is becoming where it used to be one of these leagues where teams would kind of take their turn you know Bucknell would have a Bucknell was the clear team to watch and they would break through and then Lehigh would break through and Army and Navy were certainly still in the mix and um, now it, it really is getting to the point especially with what Navy has done and it certainly looks like Army is headed that direction with what they've done the last couple of years where you can kind of expect a certain level of quality from those two programs. And, and Lehigh, I think, is, is getting there as well. Their talent is, is really, really good. And so um, I think the Patriot League, uh, by and large, I think is, is more talented across the board and is more interesting as a league across the board. Now, obviously, that doesn't change much in terms of, you know, at-large prospects or anything like that. But just from a talent standpoint and from an entertainment standpoint watching this league, I think uh, things are trending really, really well for the Patriot League as a whole. Yeah, I find it to be very interesting. Uh, Army and Navy are a big part of that, obviously, uh, and, and they have just a certain amount of interest from the casual observer, um, you know, just because of what they are. But yeah, the you know Holy Cross, you know, will will put together a team. Bucknell ha- has put together impressive teams. Now, now you have Lehigh, and um, you know we'll see what what Lafayette can do. Uh, as, as, you know, they uh, underwent, you know, a coaching change, um, you know, planned coaching change. Uh, you know, so it, it's an interesting league and it, it's a league where there's good baseball and um, I really love following it. And, and I, I just think there, there's a lot to be said for, for those programs up there. And, you know, it's not easy. You, you're balancing really, really high-end academics uh, against baseball and also against, you know, unforgiving weather in the Northeast. So it's, uh, it's not easy. And then as Mason, you know, mentioned, like they play this, 
I don't know if it's truly unique, but it's pretty close to unique format on, on their weekends, um, you know, with the, the double headers that they play and, and just what that, that does to the way they set up their staffs and have to set up their staffs. They have to, you really have four starters, not three starters, but their bullpens are maybe a little less important, especially if you have a true ace, because like Noah saw him through a complete game every single time. He would just throw one of those seven inning games and go CG. And then you you have the full complement of your bullpen for other other uh, uh, pitchers you know, if they need it. So it's uh, I, I really love it as, as a league. Um, you know, if you're looking for a low major league to get into, uh, you can you can definitely do worse than the the drum and fife uh, of the Patriot League. Um, the way that that he talked about the South Florida Collegiate League, like that. That was uh, one of the leagues that, that had some really interesting talent down there. And, um, you know, it, they, uh, they were able to play through some, you know, adverse conditions. You know, they're, the, the league is based more around Boca than it is Miami. And I'm not following South Florida trends in terms of the virus to know specifically where was the hotspot and where wasn't the hotspot. Uh, but you know they were the fact that that league was able to continue, and um, you know they only had four positive tests all summer in the league, and uh, you know to do that in the environment that that Florida was this summer, I think is a real credit to everyone involved in that league and and all the players for doing a good job of of uh, staying safe and, and following the protocols while they were down there. Yeah, I think, um, I mean, that is a good point because the, the situation there for, for a lot of the summer was not great. And they, they did a good job of, of kind of keeping that on track. And uh, I think that can be said, uh, truthfully, uh, you know, I'll, I'll be honest, when we got into this summer and, and, and granted, we were playing with a lot less inventory, uh, you know, I would just say roughly, when you, when you include the, the pop-up leagues that kind of came out of nowhere, like the Grand Park or the Honor the Game League, stuff like that. When you when you factor those in, we were probably looking at about fifty percent capacity where things normally are. And I, there were there were situations. I know that the Northwood League had to shut down a pod for a period of time. I know out here locally, the Wilson Tobbs and the Coastal Plain shut down about two thirds of the way through their schedule. But for the most part, um, things went okay. Like you know, there there weren't a ton of mass shutdowns and um, or. or leagues that just had to completely abandon ship. And that was, uh, I thought, I thought it was heartening that they were able to get through as much as, as they were able to get through. So I was pleasantly surprised in that way. And, and I'm, I'm thankful for it because, and you know, we'll talk about some of this coming up here shortly, but I, I think it was a summer where we did get to see a lot of high end guys. And, and would we have liked to have seen, for example, Matt McLean play on the Cape or with team USA where we get to see him against the true you know, see his true talent level shine through against guys who were on equal footing. Absolutely. Rather than the independent schedule Santa Barbara played and where he dominated like, absolutely. However, you know, I, I am thankful that we got to see some of those high end guys. I think it was also an opportunity to see some guys who uh, maybe were given a little bit more of an opportunity than they otherwise would have had. So there, there are some guys I saw in the coastal plain who I think if the, the talent in that league had been a little more spread out versus you know, high point being so much more talented than the rest of the league, just in the, the Northern division. I think there's some guys who maybe would have gotten a little bit drowned out. Now from a scouting perspective, it's a scout's job to still find those guys. So I don't doubt those guys would have existed, but just being able to kind of scrape box scores and stat sheets and be able to find little gems here and there that maybe we wouldn't have been able to see with the naked eye has been kind of nice. So um, there are some silver linings here. And I think one of them is just that um, I think there were, the, the opportunities were pretty well spread out. And I think because a good portion of, of some of the top players decided to sit it out and understandably so, and that's their, basically their, their prerogative to do that. We did get to see some players that maybe in a, in a, in a regular summer, we would be so focused on the Cape and team USA and, and maybe a little bit of coastal plain, a little bit of Northwood, et cetera, that really we wouldn't have paid a ton of attention to. And now those are some names I think we're going to be paying closer attention to in 2021. Yeah, I mean, I think ultimately, once the Futures League was able to go and the Wild West League, they were able to go, giving the Northeast and Pacific Northwest, respectively, um, you know, some decently high-end leagues. Uh, pretty much every area of the country had a summer league going in it. Um, and, like, I know that there was a league in Washington, and I'm sure that there were other 
leagues in the Northeast beyond the Futures League. But, you know, the, the, beyond just the, the purely local leagues, there, there were relatively um, prominent leagues pretty much in every part of the country. And, and that, that was definitely good to, you know, so that the players who did want to play uh, were, were able to, to get out and, and play relatively locally. And, you know, like Joe said, I mean, there, there were some places where there were problems, um, but for the most part, it seems like summer ball went off relatively well uh, in, in the places that, that did continue to play. And um, there's a lot to be said for that. And, you know, as I was, you know, combing through the, the various leagues and, um, you know, looking at, at the performances, like, no, I mean, I, of course, in, in a lot of these leagues, you wish that they would have been able to play more games because, you know, playing 20 games in the summer is not what we're used to. Uh, but, you know, uh, aside from that, you know, and, and even, even given that, you know, g- given the circumstances, I, I don't know how much more we really could have asked for from summer ball th- this year. And I, so I, I think that, you know, it, it's great that enough places were able to, uh, to give it a go and, and that they were able to, to go off pretty safely and, and that the players that, you know, played were, were able to go out and get some at-bats, get some innings. And, you know, I'm sure they wish there, there was more and it wasn't perfect because of course, uh, you know, I, I heard a lot that um, the, the, the pitchers were way ahead of the hitters for the first few weeks of the season and, and defense, you know, suffered and all the rest of this, but, you know, this was still an opportunity to to get back out on the diamond after you know missing three months of season this spring. Yeah, and I think ultimately conversations I've had with with summer ball coaches last few weeks have largely echoed just the it was nice to be able to do this, give the players a place to to play and kind of knock some rust off and, and get a little bit of normalcy in their lives and and all of that. And I think um, that ultimately will be it's nice to have some of these developmental stories or maybe some, some, some prospect names to watch moving forward to, to, to focus on, but, but really this kind of was just about, Hey, let's get as many guys in the field as we can. And it seemed to go pretty well. And um, you know, but um, yeah, I think that's kind of, I don't think that's been lost on the people who are, who are involved here either with people running leagues and coaches and just how important it was to, to get a summer going and get it done and, and get out with, with folks healthy and, getting their work in and, and getting something out of it. And that seems to be where we landed. So you mentioned that there were some guys that, that came to, you know, more prominence uh, because of what they were able to do this summer in this unique environment. Who were, who are some of the guys that, that caught your eye the most or, or that most intrigued you when, when you were doing some of this reporting? Yeah. I mean, there's some, so I won't spend a lot of time on some of the obvious guys. I mean, some of these are written up in the magazine and, and will be written up online, but the guys like Judd Fabian, uh, the Florida state players who were on the Orlando Scorpions uh, with um, Robbie Martin and Reese Albert, those guys are who they are. Leftwich and Mace were on that team. Matt McLean with Santa Barbara Foresters. Those guys are, are basically there was nothing there that we didn't already know. And they did, they didn't, uh, there wasn't anything really out of the ordinary there. But there are some guys who, who I think are a little bit, perhaps a little further down, um, who I think are interesting. One of them here locally was Ethan Murray at, at Duke. Um, you know, it, it was a guy when I talked to Mickey Willard, the coach of the, the High Toms, who, um, you know, he, he talked a lot about how impressed he was with Ethan Murray this summer and the really positive feedback that he was getting from the scouting community about Ethan Murray and just the, how solid his game is. Um, how much of a competitor he is, the confidence that he's going to stick it at shortstop, which obviously is a a a big um, question mark with any college shortstop is is their ability to kind of stick there. And and some guys are a little more obvious in that way than than others, but there was a lot of confidence that he is the guy, the type of guy who's going to be able to play that position defensively moving forward. So on a team full of guys that that really stood out this summer, he was one um, that that Mickey went to immediately in terms of, of guys that were getting a lot of buzz in the scouting community beyond Ryan Cusick, of course, who we've, we've talked about, we've covered him. So 
Um, one of his teammates, though, that really stood out, a name that a lot of people might not know, is Hogan Windish uh, for UNC Greensboro, who really passes the eye test, first of all. He's a, he's a big, strong guy and looks the part. He's not somebody you have to convince is strong. But you can see it in the way he impacts the baseball. Uh, you know, I saw him hit last, last weekend or the, the next to last weekend of the season, you know, just an opposite field bomb that just looked easy. Um, ball really jumps off his bat. He's also a very, what I would call a very modern player in, in terms of he's, he's, the offense is definitely there. Mickey Willard described his bat speed as, as, as big league bat speed, and, and you could see it. But he's versatile defensively, and I don't know, you know, to my eyes, I don't really know that he's, he looks like he's going to be necessarily a, a plus defender anywhere. Um, you know, he played second base at UNC Greensboro. Maybe he plays a little third moving forward at UNC Greensboro. He played left field this summer because he was playing on a team with Ethan Murray, Michael Turconi, and Zach Geloff. He wasn't going to get very many reps on the infield, so he goes out to left field, and he did a good job out there. And I think he's passable in those places, and I think that's a feather in, in his cap, especially in, in baseball in 2020, where, you know, if you've got the bat, you're going to play as long as you can be passable at a few different places. And so he's not just a guy who can play – first base, for example. Um, he's got enough versatility where a team can really love the bat and then find a place to put him. Um, but he really lit up the, the, the stat sheet this summer. Uh, understanding, of course, this summer is wonky as far as stats go. But, but, like, look, on a team with as much talent as he was playing on, the fact that he led the team in hitting at 447, led the team in home runs with, with six, and, you know, uh, you know his OBP is, is almost 14 – or his OPS, pardon me, is almost 1,400. So, like – all of that stuff is, is just very real. So he jumped on the scene big time. Another one in that same league is uh, the Peninsula Pilots have a pitcher named Jacob Polarski, who's had kind of a circuitous route to get where he is, um, you know, pitched at a junior college, then at a lower, lower level. Now he's going to the Citadel, but he was up to 96 when I've seen him this summer. And I guess that was about as high as he got uh, according to the track man data, but up to 96, just a nasty, nasty changeup that I, I wish he'd have thrown more of, to be honest. Like, I really like the changeup. And two different breaking balls, which is not something you see at this level, especially at the, the mid-major and below level. Guys with two legit breaking balls. There's a, a slider he throws more often and a more traditional 12-6. to six that he, he looked like he liked to really just kind of drop the 12-6 to six in the zone. Um, that tended to be the way he was using it there. But um, – you know, at a place like the Citadel, that's really going to play. You know, a guy with a high 90s fastball, two breaking balls, and a nasty changeup. I know there was a lot of buzz in the scout section uh, when he was out there. He was pitching against Ryan Cusick, and that helps because there were a lot of scouts there to see Cusick. So um, I think that probably did him some good. Um, I also don't doubt that he was probably a guy who, given that he's a fifth-year senior, probably got a phone call or two uh, from teams trying to maybe – I don't know that on the record or anything, but I just imagine a guy with that kind of stuff was, was getting some interest as a potential free agent sign this, this off season. So um, that's another guy I saw in person that I really liked a couple just quickly that I didn't see with my own eyes, but I've gotten, you know, uh, um, that I've seen things out of or heard things on is one is Jace Young with the Santa Barbara Foresters. Um, Matt McLean absolutely dominated and Jace Young's numbers of Texas tech were not far off. Um, you know, hit 10 home runs. It's this Josh's summer. younger brother. For, yes, jo- for yes. Out there. Josh Young's younger brother. And he's a little bit different player. We didn't get to see a lot of him in 2020 because we didn't get to see a lot of anybody. Um, he's a little bit smaller. Um, you know, he's about six foot as opposed to, you know, six, three, where Josh Young, six, three, six, four. Um, but really hit the ball well this summer. Um, like I said, if you, if, if you like what Matt McLean did statistically, you have to like what Jace Young did because his numbers were just as good or, or better in some cases. So, He's a guy I'm interested to watch uh, at Texas Tech moving forward. Um, another guy for the Orlando Scorpions team that was so loaded was David Litchfield, a reliever who pitches at UCF. Um, you know, the, the stuff on him from what I've heard is not necessarily going to jump off when you, when you watch him, but he's a high spin rate guy who, uh, you know, pitched really well this summer. And that's a UCF staff. We, we've talked about a little bit UCF more generally. Um, UCF's an interesting team. They've had a lot of kind of coming and going on their pitching staff, some transfers in, some transfers out. We'll have to see what it uh, amounts to. But, but he was a guy on a really star-studded Orlando Scorpions team that was able, much like Hogan Windish with the high toms, that was able to kind of rise above and make a name for himself as well. Yeah, it, being on one of those teams is, is a, you know, it's a, it's a big opportunity because, you know, we talk about the halo effect all the time 
in the draft and as it relates to, you know, schools in the springtime. Uh, but, you know, this summer, you know, the, the places where people could go scout were, were drawing and, you know, Orlando was drawing, um, you know, Mason Black, Ryan Cusick, when they were pitching, like they were drawing scouts. And, um, you know, so they, uh, if you could do it around those players, and like you're talking about with Windish, you know, if you're, if you're going to outperform Geloff and Murray and, and some of the other bigger name hitters on your team, like that kind of has to be noted. You know, I can write off some of the summer ball stats this summer because the competition level was very uneven. However, if you're facing the same competition as a known, you know, a more known prospect and you're outperforming them or like JC on, you're performing similarly to what Matt McLean is doing like that. That's, that's very loud. And that that's, you know, kind of direct comparable. Like these guys are facing pretty much the same, the same pitching or the same hitting if you're a pitcher. And, and so yeah, that, that becomes notable. Um, yeah. So some, de- some interesting guys to watch there. Um, all those guys, except for Yun, are are eligible in 21. Uh, you're going to have to wait for 22 for, for the next Yun brother to, to reach the draft process. But um, he's a very interesting player himself. There are some people at Texas tech that feel like he could be, you know, as good as Josh, he's a different player, but that he could have, you know, similar impact. And that's saying a lot since Josh Young is probably the best player in the Tim Tadlock era, um, you know, that has had a lot of good players, but when you just combine what he did on the field with what he meant, you know, in terms of like leadership and and then how he went in the draft, like, I don't think you're going to find a better player uh, in, in the, the Tim Tadlock era at Texas Tech. So if they can get anything close to that, I think that's uh, that's outstanding news for, for the folks in Lubbock. Yeah, no doubt. It's a, it's a tough thing, tough needle for him to thread, I think, a little bit too, because, you know, following someone who is as successful as, as Josh Young is a, is a tough thing to do. And you're always going to have to overcome the idea that, um, especially when you're someone who's not I mean, the first thing you notice about Josh Young is like, man, this guy is big and strong. And, and Jace Young being a little bit of a smaller guy, I think there's, it's easy to kind of write that off a little bit as, you know, this is just Josh's younger brother and, and, and no more than that. And so, um, so far, so good, at least um, shedding that a little bit. Uh, quickly, you mentioned that places were, were fairly heavily scouted this summer. And, and I would agree when I talked to the, the coach, the Atlanta Scorpions, Bob Reichman, about their guys. And one of the things I like to ask summer ball coaches is kind of, you know, who popped for you? Who's someone who, or put better, I think this is, this is the question they, they tend to like to answer more is, who's a guy who's just not getting love from the scouting community that you really stand by that, hey, this guy could be a pro or this guy is going to make a living or something like that. And, and he was like, really nobody because <laughs> we got scouted so well and our guys were really, you know, uh, you know the, the scouts who came out here treated us well and they were on the guys who, you know, I think are the, the guys they should be on. And, and I think that that proves your point that I think with there being fewer places to be, the places where there were to be uh, were pretty well covered. And I can attest to being in the coastal plain and, uh, you know, seeing the same group of scouts every single weekend. And to some degree, that's their, that's their job. But, you know, oftentimes it's not literally just the same places week after week after week. Yeah, and uh, I want to throw out just a few more names here um, that that we uh, of players that that popped the summer on some level um, down the Florida League. Lucas Dunn, pretty known commodity, played for the collegiate national team a summer ago, uh, but was hurt this spring. Um, you know, in the abbreviated spring, missed time. Uh, he went out, had an MVP season. Uh, down in the the Florida League, so that's good to see for for Louisville and intriguing. He he continues to be very intriguing um, as a prospect, very versatile, good hitter. Um, we'll see we'll see where that goes for him. Uh, Brennan Malone, who played in the Southern Division in the Coastal Plain League, and so therefore Joe did not get to see, but he hit nine home runs. Uh, another guy that was injured early this season uh, as a in his freshman year. 18 of his 35 hits this summer were for extra bases. So, you know, I, 
you know, again, who knows level of pitching for all of that, but like, look, if you're going to, if you're going to produce 18 extra base hits in uh, 27 games, like uh, that, th- there's something to be said for that. Um, Chase McDermott, Ball State right-hander, pitched in the, the Grand Park League there in Indianapolis, 33 strikeouts in 14 innings. Uh, kind of similar to Malone. Uh, <laughs> you're gonna if you're gonna have more than two strikeouts per inning. Uh, like I'll, I'll I'll sign up for that. And then out in San Diego, Grant Holman at Cal, who has some two-way ability, but really on the mound is where he stood out this summer. Uh, he threw eight innings across five appearances, uh, and there were no, no one had a had a hit against him all summer. He struck out 15, uh, only walked one batter. Otherwise, it would have been, I guess, eight perfect innings uh, for, for the summer. So that's uh, that's pretty good. And you know, I, that, that's a player that I'm very intrigued about what he can be. Um, I don't know where he's at in terms of hitting versus pitching and, and, and all the rest of that. But if he's going to do that on the mound, that's uh, that's very encouraging in terms of his, uh, his potential pro upside. All right, so Joe, let's circle back here. Uh, we asked Mason about burritos uh, because, again, he listed burrito as his favorite food. We asked Mason to describe his favorite burritos, so I think it's time for us to, to get real about burritos, Joe. Yeah, let's. I mean, we we saved the uh, the important stuff, the important stuff for last. And thank you for hanging with us. If you still made it to to the burrito portion of the program, I I'll just leave it at this. I I'll, I'll make it brief. I um I'm a believer that less is more on the burrito, and I think one of the um I was going to use a word like troubling, but man, that seems like an overreaction to burrito talk. One of the troubling trends in burritos. Um, <laughs> one of the one of the things that I have not cared for, it seems like, is this creep of what um, what can go in a burrito. And now I don't mean like the originality of putting different things in burritos because I'm here for that. I'm just saying the inside of the burrito does not need to have eight or nine items. Like, because I think, A, you tend to get a watered down version of whatever you're doing if you're putting eight or nine things into it. It's hard to, I, I get you want like kind of a symphony of of flavors, but I don't know how much is too much there. The other thing is that I get really irritated when the burrito is unwieldy. If I can't keep the burrito together, like I get kind of frustrated. And yes, I can work on the stuff with a fork once it's all fallen in the bottom of the tray. I get it. And I've done that and I will continue to do so. But I would much prefer the burrito to kind of hold together because I think to some degree that's how the burrito is meant to be enjoyed. So I think I think that's what I would just say is now, now if we're going to go more specifically, I'm a chicken over other meats. Um, although I, I do love like a barbacoa um, from time to time, but chicken is a, is the base uh, is the meat there. Um, I'm kind of a mild salsa person. I do like there to be a little bit of, of, of wetness in there. I don't want it to be, to be just totally dry. So I do like a salsa, but I'm a mild salsa guy because I don't want the spice to overpower kind of some of the other flavors going in. I do like guacamole in there as well. Um, you know, black beans would be in there also. Um, but I, I keep it pretty, I mean, tomatoes, lettuce, that's in there too, cheese. Um, but that's kind of the maximum that I would, that I would probably do and it kind of depends on how much of each thing is being put on there because I may even peel back a little bit like lettuce is really just filler let's be honest so like if I'm concerned when I'm putting a burrito together and I'm watching someone put it together if I'm concerned with the quantities of things that are going in there and the burrito is not going to hold together like I might back off of something like tomatoes and lettuce just to simplify the burrito um, if I feel like it needs filler, I can go that direction. But I feel like the salsa is going to give me the, you know, the tomato for the most part. And then lettuce is just kind of filler. So I, I tend to be in the, the less is more camp when it comes to to burritos, uh, just generally. Yeah, I, so, you know, I, I, I used to do a weekly interview during the season uh, with a player where I would ask them for their, like, Chipotle order. Um and, you know, I, we, we didn't ask Mason for that, but effectively he gave us that, you know, and so if I'm, if I'm at a place where I'm assembling this myself, like a Chipotle or a Moe's or 
you know, wherever. Um, we're definitely going with some rice. I tend to go with the barbacoa. Um, not opposed to chicken, not opposed to ground beef, you know, whatever. Uh, but like if a barbacoa is available, that's probably where I'm headed. Uh, black beans. I like the mild salsa as well. Like if I'm eating chips, I want something more like, uh, with, with more bite. Uh, but like Joe mentioned, you know, in a burrito, letting it breathe a little more, um, with the mild salsa, you can, you can make that happen. I want some sort of corn if it's available, sour cream, um, tomatoes you know depending on what kind of salsa we've got if it's like a, a real chunky pico maybe we don't need the tomatoes uh since that's what the pico is anyway but if it's uh if it's not that for whatever reason then maybe we need to add some tomatoes in and then i would i would generally go with lettuce and cheese is kind of a maybe maybe not it's a it's definitely a, a game time decision situation um but yeah, also I don't want the burrito falling apart. That's not the point of the burrito. I didn't order an enchilada. I'm not, you know, if, if I wanted that, if I wanted to use a knife and fork, like I would order something else. Like this is, this is a burrito. It needs to stay together. You need to wrap it well enough. Um, I'm open to two, you know, tortillas if that's what it takes. Uh, but you know, we, we need to have some structural integrity when, when we're making a burrito. Yeah, I totally agree. I was actually, so uh, shouting out other podcasts like crazy here lately, but uh, Dan and Ty from the Solid Verbal, uh, really podcasting uh, legends at this point. They've been doing that show for, for such a long time. They really, <laughs> really deserve a lot of credit for that. But they, uh, Dan, of course, is a, is a big food guy. And, and he talks about with sandwiches, the slop factor. And he likes, he's talked about how he likes, he sees it as a positive when there's like a certain level of sloppiness to a sandwich and maybe occasionally with a burger, I kind of want that, but I kind of feel the same way about sandwiches and burritos where I just, I don't want it like all the way up to my elbows. Like I just, I don't like, I, I want there to be a lot of varied flavors going on, but not at the expense of actually being able to eat it as it's intended, whether it's a sandwich or a burrito. Yeah, I would, I would definitely agree with that, but I don't like open face sandwiches. Like it's, if you're going to call it, a sandwich. If you're gonna call it a burrito, like I need to be able to pick it up. Like that's that's what we're doing here. I don't I don't want the knife and fork situation. Uh, if you want me to use a knife and fork, like that's fine. Let's just call this something else though, because uh, you know, a burrito, it, it should come in the foil, and I should eat it in the foil. Like that's that's what we're working with here. Uh, and it, it's going to be a little messy. Like I understand that, but it, it doesn't need to be. I, I do not want sloppiness uh, in, in terms of, of that. Um, that. That is to its detriment, I would say. Yeah, you don't I need do to abandon. I want to try. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, you don't need, uh, just one more, is one more thing on this. You don't need, my, my thing is you, if you have to abandon the burrito or sandwich format before the last bite of the tortilla or bread, something has gone right. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. Um, I do want to... Uh, I would like to try, um, you know, Mason Mason's mother's restaurant that uh, sounds like they have a really good breakfast burrito, which in Durham is very difficult, if not impossible to find, um, which is very unfortunate. And I'm sure as as a Texan you're, yourself, Joe, that, that you can relate to the idea of a breakfast burrito being an outstanding dish. 100%. As you were as you were talking there, I pulled up the menu. Now these are not burritos, although, I mean, what is a soft taco other than a burrito that just hasn't been totally folded over? Now different size tortillas, I get it, but yeah, mini, still. mini burrito, not quite yeah, folded. Yeah. yeah. But uh, I'm looking at the menu for Fuego um, because I remember those were when I lived in college station for a brief period of time, like that was my favorite place in town and they had really, really good breakfast uh, tacos. So it's funny you bring that up because I was, I was looking at them, looking at them here. But I, see, one thing I liked about Fuego a lot of variety. The tacos themselves, though, are not overdone. Like they're not, there's not too much going on. My favorite, which is Dr. Pepper Cowboy, which I will read off to you now. Smoked brisket, grilled onions, Dr. Pepper barbecue sauce, chipotle cream corn, and jack cheese in a flour tortilla. Delicious and simple. Like I don't, there just doesn't need, to, it doesn't need to be complicated. So yes, I'm with you. Breakfast burritos, breakfast tacos, um, always going to be what I choose if I'm 
if, if I'm given the option for breakfast and I'm, and I'm out at some place, it's, that's definitely kind of the thing I'm, I'm looking for. Absolutely. There's a, a place in Durham that like opened during the pandemic doing burritos, but they actually aren't even open for lunch. They're, they're exclusively a dinner situation and um, missing a whole opportunity here with, uh, with the breakfast burrito, but um, maybe someday, maybe someday. Yeah, I mean, people are having to make concessions all over the place because of the pandemic, but it seems um, burritos and dinner, I mean, you could do it, don't get me wrong, like I've had Chipotle for dinner a number of times in my life or different burrito places, but it, it's typically a lunch type of thing. So I think that's uh, um, sadly a, a missed opportunity and, and here's hoping I'm able to uh, experience said breakfast burritos there at, at some point. Absolutely. Well, um, we probably need our own burrito podcast, burrito slash taco podcast. Uh, longtime listeners will, will know my appreciation of, uh, of the, the genre. So uh, we probably should, should wrap it up here before uh, we, we continue much further down this road and turn this into a three-hour podcast uh, largely about burritos. We, uh, we appreciate you guys for listening to the Baseball America College podcast, wherever you guys uh, find your podcast, you can subscribe, uh, be that Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, if you, we, we appreciate you guys subscribing, rating, reviewing, doing all the rest of that. It, it, it helps us, it helps other people to find the podcast. Uh, so if you can take the time to do that, uh, we, we uh, ask you to do so and, and really appreciate uh, all the, the comments and five-star reviews you guys can uh, leave for us. Um, you can follow us on Twitter. I am at Ted Cahill. Joe is at Joe Healy BA. We will be back here with the next edition of the Baseball America College podcast next week with another uh, guest from around college baseball, uh, just as we've been all off season and will continue to be. So uh, you can look forward to that and plenty of other content over at baseballamerica.com. Uh, and like I mentioned, we recently sent uh the September issue of the magazine out the door. So hopefully for those of you that subscribe to the magazine, you will be seeing that in your mailboxes relatively soon. Want to thank Mason Black again for joining us today here. Thank you to Joe. Thanks to Rap Soto for presenting this podcast and every Baseball America college podcast. And thank you guys for listening. We'll talk to you next week. What's so special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.